This is episode 17 of Alohomora for December 2nd, 2012. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Michael Harley. And we are super excited at Alohomora to have an awesome special guest this week. Uh, his name is Lev Grossman, and he is um, Time's book critic. He's a famous author and just an awesome guy all around. So thank you so much for joining us, Lev. I'm, I'm super stoked to be here. So tell us, tell us what you're doing these days. I mean, I know, I know you're writing your last book, but um, what else is keeping you occupied? Uh, wow, let's see. It's it's mostly about the book right now. I, I you know I write I've written the magicians and the magician king, and then there's a, a third book that's um, uh, going to be the third book of the trilogy, uh, and probably last book of the trilogy since there are three books, and that would be appropriate for a trilogy. Um, so I, I'm sort of two thirds of the way through that, and uh, I'm writing a couple other bits of fiction on the side, um, uh, which is quite a, uh, which is a lot of fun. But I'm in the sort of phase. I sort of go through cycles where I work for time and I work on fiction. Right now I'm focused on fiction, which is kind of my favorite thing to write. Um, so uh, that is what I'm working on. And we just had a baby, so I'm, I'm working on that as well. Well, that definitely sounds like it keeps you busy. Yeah, that's, that's enough for now. You want to give us any little spoilery tidbits? Oh, gone. Uh, uh, I got the spoilers. I, I shouldn't give you too much. The, the, I think I tried to get a lot out of you when I interviewed you at uh, LeakyCon yeah. a couple of months ago. <laughs> what I generally say is that you know the, the 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 new book starts back at Breakbills, which is the school for magic in the books. Uh, you know, I just it's funny rereading um, uh, Chamber of Secrets. This reminded me just how many stories you could find in a school for magic. What a great just infinitely, you know, exciting and pleasurable setting it is for fiction to put things in a school for magic. Um, you could never really be done with it. And I felt like, even though my first round of characters had gone to break bills and graduated, I needed to go back just because um, there was still so much there. That makes me really excited. So. <laughs> Great. Thank you. And and we usually usually ask new guests about, like, their their experiences with Pottermore and sort of what house they've gets got sorted into, but I think we've kind of already gone through that and you're sort of disdain for a lot with Pottermore, so we won't <laughs> have to spend a lot of time on that. It's painful go to go through <clears throat> my association with Hufflepuff. I have a ton of respect for Hufflepuff. I, it's just not where I personally saw myself, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, it's been a slow process of acceptance, basically. Hmm. That's good. I'm sure the Hufflepuffs out there will welcome you with open arms. So. Yes, <laughs> and it's been great. Oh, good. <laughs> And we're going to jump right into our comments from our previous uh, week's chapters, which were chapters 13 and 14. The first comment we have here comes from the forums, and it's about the basilisk communication. And it's from Tower Raven. Comment says, I always thought that Ginny, under the diary possession, spoke parcel mouth to let the basilisk into the school in the bathroom where the pipe entrance to the chamber is. The basilisk would travel up the main pipe Harry, Ron, and Lockhart used to get into the bathroom, then wait for its victims to be in the vicinity of the bathroom, attack, and retreat back into the pipe and down into the chamber. So, what do you guys think about that? Hmm. Um, where are Justin Finch Fletchley and Nearly Headless Nick found? Because I didn't think they were found near... I might be wrong, because I haven't over, looked over that chapter for a while, but um, 
I didn't think they were found near the bathroom. I, I, I figure if everybody was found, like, in close vicinity of the bathroom, that might have been a clue. <laughs> so, and nobody thought to follow that lead in the mm. first place. So, I mean, I, it makes sense because I, from that theory makes sense as far as, like, where else is the basilisk going to show up? Because he can't go slithering around the hallways because that's... Right, but he gets he gets Hermione and Penelope... By, by the, the library, library. Right. so because mm-hmm. I was listening, because I was on the last episode, but I was listening, and I know you guys talked about that. Um, so I don't know if I don't think it can just be that, or else we wouldn't have people getting petrified by the library. Right. Yeah, I can't remember where Justin and Nick were petrified. I don't think it was outside the bathroom. No, no, that would have no. been pretty significant if they had been Harry. Potter I don't even know if it actually it. does. It mention it? I can't even remember if it mentions it. I think it just says an upstairs corridor or yeah, something of that nature. So it's a good idea, but I, and and the basilisk is long, so he could probably kind of stay sitting in the pipe and still be stretched out. But again, it's like a giant snake in the hallways. Who's not going to notice that? So great. Well, our next comment comes from the main site from Van Reich. Possibly, um, it's about Serpent Sortia. We were talking about last week how uh, the parallels between Book Two and Book Six with the Sortias, and um, it's a pretty long comment. But one of the topics, um, or one of the things that they mentioned was they were going through the um, Wonder Book of Spells, that new video game or whatever that's out, and there's a bit on Avis, which is the bird uh, conjuring charm, and it says. Um, that the conjured birds were, of course, not real animals, but mere phantoms created by magic. It goes on to say that it also mentioned that conjuring animals is quite difficult magic, but birds and snakes are easier for some reason, unknown to the Department of Mysteries. I thought that was really interesting that, Hmm. you know, it's easier to get snakes and birds. I don't know. It also says that um, the better you are at conjuring spells, the the more lifelike the conjured animals would be. And something about the theory behind animal conjuring having to do with the principle of artifacianimate quasi-dominance. Did I even, did I <laughs> yeah, butcher that word? It's, it's close enough. So. <laughs> um, but the final thing that this person said was that potentially we could say that Draco couldn't control the snake to attack. And it was merely acting of its own accord. But maybe the Serpent Sortia spell is not just a conjuring spell. It could possibly be a spell to conjure a snake with the intention of attacking a target or something. So, hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it's interesting that the idea that birds and, and birds and snakes are somehow easier. Yeah, why is that? A fewer number of bones? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. No one else? cool okay <laughs> good well, good thoughts all around i get well i mean if i was gonna say anything i i i guess i just oh go ahead go ahead love oh i was trying to do a mental inventory of how many bird how many bones would be in a bird or a snake compared to <laughs> other animals um but it's just yeah that, not a, not a, not an area of strength for me personally <laughs> well does it because this this so this information comes from the wonder book of spells apparently yes okay because mm-hmm. i i mean I, I, I've been I've been like cool with Pottermore and the information it's come out with so far. I guess just that's starting to feel and they talked about this on MuggleNet Academia, but this is that's kind of starting to feel like one of these things that it was an afterthought just by rolling and you know it, 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 as much as a, as much as we love the series that that, that seems like because she has admitted that some of the stuff she wrote after 
um, she wrote the books or thought up after she wrote the books. And this kind of seems like one of those things like, oh, well, I had them conjure birds and snakes, and those are the animals that they conjured, so those are the easy ones. <laughs> but that that doesn't feel like anything that there, there's really no other, not a lot of other instances where those, like any animal just comes out of a wand in the books. That's true. So, I mean, there's transfiguration, but that's different. So, yeah, that's... It just feels like kind of another one of those Pottermore editions, Pottermore canon type things. Right. There's canon and then there's canon. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Cool. All right. So this comment is for Noah. So he's not here, unfortunately, but still. It's about the Mandrakes. It's from the main oh site. <laughs> I you know. guys like have cooked up something <laughs> ridiculous when the one episode I'm not on, this like Mandrake movement that is going on on the web i don't yeah. even know he's pretty excited about it um he even started a twitter it's man mandrakes forever and it's the mandrake liberation front yeah oh my god it's crazy <laughs> but the comment from alex 24601 says isn't it odd that mandrakes are considered plants don't you think they fit better into the animal category for example it is told that they can move from place to place which is a trait not mostly shown by plants unless absolutely necessary I might be imagining this, but I feel like at one point the students are feeding the mandrakes. Would this suggest heterotrophism? In an oh my god, what are these words? Okay, heterotrophism (laughs) and an autotrophic by definition being. Thank you. I'm not going to read that. Uh, Their hopping from plant to plant also suggests that they hadn't taken root yet; they had grown. I mean, from what I've read in the seventh grade science, these characteristics do not constitute a plant. If we could examine a mandrake cell, do you believe it would show a cell wall? Do you think it has both the same characteristics, making it a humanoid plant hybrid? So I really like this comment, like as like the science person here. Um, So basically what they're talking about, the heterotrophism versus autotrophic heterotrophism means like you have to consume things to get your energy as opposed to like what plants are they're autotrophic they can create their energy through photosynthesis so basically this person's asking are these whatever they are dependent on other things for energy but i think i think it still can be categorized a plant because everything in like animal or plant kingdom has weird exceptions right because like there's a plant called the venus flytrap which can like capture like insects and somehow digest and consume them but it's still a plant and that's not really characteristic of a plant that's true but they don't hop from pot to pot that that is true but we are dealing with magic here so (laughs) that's true (laughs) um there is another great comment that i found on the forums from lady spade on the same topic it says i find it curious and significant of the timing of the mandrake killing just as they mature and start hopping into each other's pots if we are going to um, going to this root of maturity being a sign of sexual awakening, if we harvest the mandrakes just at this time, this would be the point of heightened virility and extreme potency, like virgin offerings. Oh my. Virgin offerings? <laughs> yeah. There's a real rabbit hole of uh, uh, mandrake continuity here. Uh, I, I never really I never really thought about that, but you could, it kind of goes all the way down, doesn't it? It, it does. Like, we could just, oh, Noah's going to want to take this even farther. Damn it. Uh, yeah, he's but, kicking himself for not being on this episode right now, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, but suddenly, like, mandrakes and spring awakening are, like, clashing in my brain, and I just don't even know how to deal with it. 
Maybe we shouldn't. Let's just leave it for Noah. Let him deal with it next time. Okay. And our last comment from last week is our about our discussion on the houses and the humors. And this comes from the forums from Loomis Knight 3. It says, I personally agreed wholeheartedly with the analysis given about the four humors and the houses. I have always considered myself to be a melancholy person, but I think introverted and thoughtful fits Ravenclaw House perfectly. Introverted does not automatically mean you are shy. It just means that you are energized or stimulated by being reflective and inward thinking than you are by being by the things that get other houses going. Hmm. I don't know. As a Ravenclaw, I, I don't know. I'm definitely not introverted. I'm just not. So I, I guess I, I, I disagree. I see a lot of Ravenclaws as introverted. I think you're like one of the exceptions of like Ravenclaws I know. Hmm. I see most Ravenclaws as introverted because like they're like, I don't know, like studious and they're also like very like alone in their like intellectual thought. Okay, I could see that. You weren't on last episode, so what do right, you th- what do you think about this? Yeah, I listened back. I don't really think the four the four humors match up with the houses that well. Um, I think I can't remember if it was Rosie or Noah talking about like these these characteristics. Well, Noah brought up how he thought melancholy meant like one thing, and Rosie brought up you know these words have different meanings, and especially through time. So I, I don't think those humors match up with the houses too well, really. Yeah, I agree. They're too, they, too many characteristics could be for anything, for any house. Yeah. Love, I'm curious, what do you think, why do you think you do fit in Hufflepuff? I know it was a hard, a hard acceptance for you, but what, why do you think you do fit there? Well, it's, that, it's this classic thing where, you know, you have certain ideas about how yourself and who you are and what your dominant traits are. Uh, and then yet, obviously, some other traits basically sort of showed themselves in the kind of sorting process. Uh I guess um, I had I I was thought of myself as sort of introverted and, and focused on intellectual things. I was sort of a wannabe Ravenclaw, uh, and I had sort of focused on that as you know, let's do this, let's get let's get Ravenclaw. Uh, and yet, I don't know. Maybe you know there are there are other aspects of myself which are are actually more important um, and more sort of outward facing in terms of how I deal with other people that came out in the sorting process. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, Hufflepuff a good thing to be. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm coming around to it, but it's kind of altered the way I sort of look at myself and think about who I am. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause Kat, you went through something similar, right? Just kind of, you didn't, you didn't identify as a Ravenclaw before, right? Right. That's true. I thought I was a Hufflepuff. Actually. So y'all are kind of like backwards. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm happy. being. It's like you guys now. are switched yeah. at birth. No, I know. It's a real oh story. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That would be incredible. <laughs> but yeah, more more house discussion. I don't think we'll ever be have enough to talk about with the houses. No. How many books we go through? No, definitely not. All right, some great comments, but we're gonna move to um, you guys' comments from our special feature last week, which was Pottermore in depth. So our first comment comes from again Alex two four six zero one from the main site, and this is on the topic of ghosts. I have a genius idea about ghosts having a physical body. In Prisoner of Azkaban, I believe, it is said that walking through a ghost feels like walking through a cold shower, suggesting a vapor-like substance. This reminds me of what I've learned about the water cycle, that water evaporates and condensates into a cloud. Could ghosts absorb water and other liquids, mandrake drought, 
and use them to create a vapor body through a magical twist of the water cycle. Going through clouds has been described to have the same feeling. Does this make ghosts essentially clouds with spirit? Huh. So That's- it's interesting, but you the, the theory starts out with walking through a cold shower of vapor-like substance, but walking through a cold shower wouldn't... Oh, I guess they're saying vapor because of walking through the ghost part, because I was about to say... The shower is just liquid, Wait, but I guess liquid, if you yeah. add the ghost element. Hmm. I mean, that's interesting, but I mean, they're dead. So, right. So, no, I think essentially is my answer. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've never, gosh, it would be cool to walk through a cloud. I mean, can we yeah. do that? Can we fix that? Well, Make I mean, happen? isn't fog almost the same as a cloud? Well, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. Just not dense enough, right? Yeah. Science was not my best subject, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. All right. Well, something definitely interesting. Um, The next comment comes on the topic of Hermione's skill with the Polyjuice Potion. And this is from our forums from, uh, do you say the Cyan? I think so. Cyan. Cyan girl. Maybe Hermione knew in advance that she didn't have enough of the ingredients to make it balanced enough to last for more than an hour, considering how she had to steal from Snape's cupboard and do so quickly. Potion making is delicate business, after all. I think it shows her smarts that she was able to estimate how long the potion would last, though. That's true. I'm sure Hermione knows that she's not the best at potions and probably knew that she wouldn't make, you know, the perfect 12-hour polyjuice. That's probably true. That's true. Because I guess, like, when she talks about the ingredients, we never really know how much of those things, like, are required. So I guess, you know, however much, however long you need it to be depends on how much you need. That would make sense. Yeah, I guess the the quantity would yeah. denote the length, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. Cool. Good, good, good comments this week. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so it looks like Rosie's question uh, for the previous week was about the diary horcrux and how uh it's the one of the most powerful horcruxes seemingly because of the um ability it has to uh, possess people the ability it has to open up the chamber of secrets through that possession take control of the basilisk and so forth and rosie's question was why is it that the diary horcrux is so much more powerful than the other horcruxes is it because this was voldemort's first horcrux um, and therefore it had a greater share of his soul, or is it because young Tom Riddle once poured his soul into the form of the diary entries and the Horcrux was made more powerful due to the deep personal significance it had? Um, and so we had some answers on the forums. The first one comes from, from Lovell and it says, I think it's a combination of both. We all know that being a teenager contains a lot of thoughts because this is the stage of life Uh, where we find ourselves as individuals, since it is Voldemort's diary, it contains his thoughts during his teenage years, thus letting anyone see his life when he was just a teenager. Since it's his first horcrux, I also think that most of his soul is inside that diary. And looking at it, the diary is the only horcrux that is personally his. The diary is not really the glamorous trophy that Tom wanted, but it is something that truly he owns from the very start, meaning that the diary was not tainted with other magic, from a previous owner making Tom's soul easily fit into the diary. Yeah, see, I, I definitely agreed with, with Rosie last week that 
the first Horcrux, I feel, has the largest part of his soul in it. You know, that because I'm pretty sure that it says, you know, he you split your soul in half. Or does it say into pieces? I'm pretty sure it says in half. So the first Horcrux would have 50% of his soul. That's what I believe. Anyway. And then the next one's like 25 and then 12.5 and then 6.25 and all on the way down until there's like nothing there. I think so. And that's why they, they kept getting, you know, they were so imbalanced. And by the time they got down to, you know, Nagini and everything. And Harry. Yeah. Well, that makes hmm. sense. Yeah, because I never thought of. I guess I always thought of it as like an even seven split. But since he didn't do them all at the same time, that makes sense. Yeah, that's something that like Joe should clear up for us because that's. <laughs> I don't think it can be like settled until she tells us how the magic actually works. If it is like like Rosie said, like you split every time with what's left, or if like it sort of reappropriates itself after you know it makes the second one. Because this is kind of, I mean, obviously no one had really made seven horcruxes before. Riddle was like the first one to do something like this, so it was never really a question that needed to be posed for anyone else. Horcruxes right. alone were pretty rare. I see him as a planner, though. He probably knew he was going for seven, and maybe he's, he, he would know to shave off a seventh of his soul. Maybe it's not that, you know, precise of a process. I don't know. Mm hmm. Hmm, that would be cool if he, well. All right, not cool. It is a horror <laughs> after all, but I mean, like cool per if, se. But if he could determine how much soul to put into it, I know what you're saying. Yeah, if he had control over it. Hmm. Well, and he wasn't intending to put his soul into Harry, so that's true. Right. Then he then if you look at it that way, there's there was less of an inten- there was more of an intention with the first ones, but that last one then. So maybe that's I well, and then of course there's the difference of Harry being a physical person. And then the other Horcruxes being objects, um, so maybe that also that obviously also has some effect on how how that affects the actual thing that the Horcrux is in. Yeah, the host. Reading this, it's a totally awesome uh, question. Reading it, it made me think of just you know the powerful place that the written word and, and books themselves have in Rowling's imagination. I mean, clearly to her, just on kind of a meta level, you know. The novels and books uh, have, and characters in, and characters in them have an almost human-like reality to her. Um, the way or the way she writes them, anyway. Um, and I almost feel like that was part of it for her. For her books and fictions, the characters in them they're they're so close to being alive and being real that they have this kind of semi-autonomy all on their own. Wait, yeah. I, I think you're saying that they're not real. <laughs> <laughs> just, just going out on a limb here. You just crushed all my hopes and dreams. I'm sorry. I agree, though, because, I mean, she just, she's so brilliant with her characterization. And I think that that does sort of explain, you know, why it works so well. Because she does sort of give that autonomy to them in a way. Because, yeah. Not to yeah. liken Rowling to Voldemort, but she does kind of put this part of her soul into her books when she writes them. Absolutely. Very much so. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, Split seven ways. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Split seven well, ways. and I was thinking, too, that, uh, you, Caleb, with you mentioning that, you know, there's the only way to definitively say what's going on here is for her to explain it. And I almost think that it it won't – I'm kind of hoping, actually, that she won't explain it, that this will be one thing she leaves alone on Pottermore because hmm. it's kind of a con- – this is a concept in both – um, that I learned a lot about in film, but I, I know it's very important in novels as well. The kind of the idea of, um, just not, 
that that you you don't have to explain everything. What you don't show is actually sometimes more effective than what you do. And I think the idea of the Horcrux the Horcrux creation is supposed to be so horrific that it kind of can't be explained with words. Um, that it's 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 more effective to the imagination if you don't know how it's done. Um, and she gives us the basics that you have to kill somebody to do it. She doesn't tell you what you have to do to yourself. She just tells you that it's really horrific, but she mm. won't say how. And um, I think to the imagination, that's a pretty... That makes it m- more frightening than knowing the full-on details about how it works. That's a great point. Do you feel that's true whenever... Whenever you write love, oh, this guy, especially when you're writing about magic uh, or anything super supernatural, um, that you know the the constant danger is over explaining it um, uh, because you know there's this always this you want to leave this gap that that people's imaginations or their subconsciouses, whatever you want to call it, kind of fill with this amazing power and meaning. Uh, and if you explain it to death, suddenly magic. Well, you explain it to death, and, and, it, and magic dies, and it just becomes science, which nothing against science. I love science. It's very important. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps me alive. But, uh, you know, magic, you always want to leave this gap where people can just imagine it for themselves. All right. Should we move on to the next uh, mm-hmm. yep. Go for it. response? We got one from Loomis Knight 3. I think the power of a horcrux has a lot to do with the object chosen to become a horcrux. Out of the seven horcruxes, you could arguably say that the diary, Nagini, and Harry are the most powerful, considering the extent of the damage Voldemort's soul causes through them. The one thing these three horcruxes all have in common with one another is communication. They are all capable of instant communication with people, slightly less so for Nagini as she is limited to Philip Arselmouths. And they have extreme capabil- capacities for working with memories and the mind. The other Horcruxes don't seem to have these possibilities, not because they are less powerful, but because a ring, a cup, a diadem, and a locket can't talk. Right. And that's what you were saying before, that, yeah, they're more powerful because of what they are. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Yeah, I buy that. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, that seems like a pretty flat-out simple statement. Okay. And that doesn't happen often. <laughs> <laughs> this happened like last on y'all's last episode, where and then Noah decided to bring in the ghost host to disagree. Oh yes, that's right. I remember that. So maybe Noah's out there somewhere disagreeing. He might be. He might be. I mean, that seems like a pretty good argument. I can't really disagree with that one, just because that's that's pretty flat out yeah. as is. If if you've got communication, if you can act, if the if if the Horcrux host can actually communicate that's just an easier way to get its get its evil across i guess right so uh from broadway cat perhaps it has something to do not only with how split his soul has already been and how corrupt he is at the time of making it or how much evil he has already done and how many times he's killed obviously to make a horcrux we are told you have to kill someone do something so horrendous that it can cleave the soul if the diary was his first horcrux then his first victim myrtle would have arguably been his first human kill torturing and killing pets is something very different than killing a human being it brings a whole new step into his um becoming an emotionless monster well but technically myrtle isn't really his first kill right because he i mean he indirectly kills her it's not by his hand right and that we talked about that a little bit last week because i didn't believe that it was his kill technically and that he couldn't make a horcrux from it because he didn't physically kill her and i'm pretty confident like 
I'm pretty confident she's not one of the kills for the Horcruxes. Actually, I think we have here that she was confirmed as the first kill. Is she? Yeah, yeah she is. She from uh, so Allie Wood said in the forums uh, that JK confirmed in the Bloomsbury web chat back in 07 um, that Myrtle was the first kill um, for the diary. The uh, Hufflepuff Cup was Hepzibah Smith. Uh, the Locket was a Muggle Tramp, who we don't know the identity of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nagini was Bertha Jorkins. Um, and the di- the Diadem was an Albanian peasant, and the ring was his father. Okay. Yeah, I remember that now from that interview. But now it makes me question, because it's not like his direct kill. Yeah, but if you were Third. sort of in a jury, you know, ruling on the case, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, well, you know... You know, I, I didn't kill her. It was the gun that killed her. You know, oh, the basilisk. True. I just wanted yeah. the basilisk at her, and that was it. I don't know. It seems like a pretty gray area. I guess, like, so it's the intent that he um, sort of facilitated the kill. It's enough to cleave the soul. I think it would be enough to cleave my soul, definitely. <laughs> That's fair. The, the whole thing's convoluted, though, because if you think about. So, what year was this? Because this, Hogwarts. I mean, uh, Hagrid got expelled in his third year, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so yeah. when Harry goes back in the diary, it's the third year. He doesn't know about Horcruxes because he doesn't ask Slughorn about them until, what, his sixth year? Fifth year, at least, because he's a prefect. Or so, maybe he knows about him. Maybe he knows about them and he doesn't talk to Slughorn about them until he's interested in doing more. I don't know. Because isn't that really what the conversation talks about? Like, he brings it up and then... He says, what if someone, and I'm thinking more about the movie scene, but, you know, what if someone were to do more? And then, like, Slughorn reacts to, like, how ridiculous and Okay, how so you think he's be. asking Slughorn about how to do it multiple times, not just once. Yeah. What does the, hmm, I wonder what the text says. I'm very curious. It just seems very, like, like this is a mistake. Like, J.K.R. screwed it up somehow. The mm. timeline. Only tangentially related, it makes me think about, you know, what epic um, potential there would be for other objects used as horcruxes. I mean, in retrospect, it seems rather sentimental and impractical of uh, Voldemort to have used a ring, a cup, a locket. You know, why don't you just make a bear your horcrux? Or, you know, an atomic bomb would be your horcrux. Why not just max it out and go for some seriously powerful, um, or, you know, I don't know, Movie camera, just you could get really creepy and weird with your horcruxes. Um, it looks like he actually was fairly conventional with his choices. Yeah, I, well, I think he, and I can't remember if this is discussed in the books or just elsewhere that I've seen him, but he tried to get, you know, something that was really meaningful, at least for some of them. He tried to get something from every founder. I guess it's a good thing that he didn't have a meaningful bear that he could use as his horcrux. That's true. <laughs> the destructive that power bear. of such a bear would be really frightening. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that goes along with the idea that he's Voldemort's very possessive, and so if if it's something very close to him or something that he manages to get in his possession, then mm-hmm. it becomes like he wants to make it his. Especially and, if it's associated associated with like that pure old magic, mm-hmm. like with the founders. Yeah, he's a collector. He'd be a terrible. He'd be a really frightening hoarder. I'm sure. Oh my gosh, I thought about that just as you said that. Like, Hoarder Special Edition. <laughs> Alright, so so I looked it up in Half-Blood Prince, and it's in the chapter Lord Voldemort's Request, and Harry is 
recalling the the memory, and it says that Voldemort killed his father and grandparents and made it look like his uncle did it, and then went back to Hogwarts and asked Slughorn about the Horcruxes. Hmm. So, I think it's a mistake. Uh oh. Hmm. Well, because yeah, I'm on the I'm on the lexicons timeline and. It looks like in 1942, that's when he started his fifth year and was made a prefect, and he learned to open the chamber and release the basilisk the following year in 43. Um, so he killed Myrtle in in May of 1943. So he, I. So in his sixth year. Yes, I think no his his fifth his fifth year. Fifth year. Yeah. So. And he was so a Hagrid prefect. wouldn't have been there. So and Hagrid wouldn't have been there. So and this is an oops. It has to be. Yeah, I wanna I wanna dig on it a little bit, think about it. Maybe yeah. our fans has have some ideas also. Yeah, someone it's, write something up. It says Hagrid started his first year in 1940, um, according to the lexicon. So I and I guess that they did all the calculations. So I uh, they made it out to be correct. I'm not sure though. Oh right, because they probably weren't in the same year. No, they no 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 they weren't in the same year. Right. No 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 yeah Hagrid was younger. So, mm. okay. Yeah. So not an oops. It was just my own brain. Well, yeah, oh yeah, it because up. yeah, he is because he has a prefect badge when Harry sees him in the memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he so had, he's at least a fifth year. Yeah, right. And so. Hagrid is third year. Okay. Yeah. The only I he's guess probably is. Oh, go ahead. God. I, I mean, I'd say he's at least a sixth year because doesn't Tom becomes head boy, right? Yeah. yeah. So he wouldn't have a prefect badge. He would have a head boy badge. So he's probably in his sixth year, fifth or sixth, anyway. I guess the only weird part about this then is that, and I guess if you think about Voldemort and how he operated, he thought of everything, but I guess it would be kind of weird that Voldemort just picked this random third year to pick on, but I guess since Hagrid was so tall, that was just an easy choice. And Hagrid made himself an easy target, I guess. Yeah, I was about to say the opportunity kind of opened up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a little odd. Meanwhile, as we talk about mistakes, Joe is because we know she listens every episode. <laughs> oh yeah, it's probably totally. just like guys for the, for the bloody hell, just move on already. <laughs> All right, forget All right. the mistakes. Sorry, Sorry Joe. We're, We're moving we'll on, move, Joe. We're moving, We're moving on. on. <laughs> okay, and then it looks like we've got uh, another comment from Silverdo twenty five. I am not entirely certain that the diary was the first Horcrux that Voldemort created, as Dumbledore points out. The diary concerned him because it was left about casually which one wouldn't do with a uh, one and only Horcrux. I believe that Voldemort's first Horcrux was the ring. During his conversation with Slughorn, Tom is wearing the ring, indicating that he had already killed his father and grandparents. He wore the ring for a time until he created the Horcrux. Then he hid it in the in the gaunt shack. Well, I don't... Because I don't know if when Rowling said in 2007 when she mentioned each thing, if that was the order of the Horcruxes or if she was just listing them as she thought of them. But I always thought she was listing them in order from when he made them. She couldn't have because she goes diary, cup, locket, Nagini. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the the, the, the Nagini wouldn't have been made that early. Mm. That's right. So then that, that that is possible then. All right, so we're thinking that he gets, he goes, gets the ring, comes back to Hogwarts asks about the horcruxes then goes back and creates the horcrux and then lets the basilisk out to kill myrtle yes. is that what we're saying i think that's what we're saying here is that yeah the ring yeah was because it was he was wearing it already okay 
Someone needs to make a Horcrux timeline because my head hurts. Yeah, exactly. Please. <laughs> Someone help us out. Someone out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we have another response from Snuffles on the forums. Uh, Tom Riddle's first victims were Tom Riddle Sr. and his parents. When he goes when he goes back for his last year at Hogwarts, he has already killed them. And it's a very personal murder. I think it was the one that went into making the diary Horcrux. Well, we know that's not correct, but we know yeah. that's not correct. Yeah, but that, uh, but, but it could have been the first one. Yeah, he so. could have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the yeah, hmm. cool. Very confusing. Someone straighten that, please. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know but my some head good hurts. thoughts, nonetheless. Yeah. Yes. We're jumping to the chapter discussion now. Chapters fifteen and sixteen, Aragog and the Chamber of Secrets. Go ahead, Cat. Take it away. Okay, I will. So at the be- at the beginning of chapter fifteen, um, Hermione is still in. Wait, is she still in the hospital wing? Yeah. Yes, she is still in the hospital wing um, with her cat face. Right. No, yes. No, no, okay. No, yeah. she's for petrified. Cat- no, she's petrified. The cat. Face. Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> cat face was a long time ago. Wrong yeah, hospital wing. Hard for her body. <laughs> Yeah, this is a rough year for her. Okay, um, but visitors are barred from the hospital wing, you know, including best friends. And I was just wondering, like, do they seriously not know at this point still who is attacking the students? I mean, is a wizard able to petrify someone? I mean, they, it has to be, somebody has to have figured it out. Right? Well, I mean, I don't think a student really would be capable of it, but I guess they maybe they are concerned about the idea of possession. Maybe they didn't know what like what was possessing a student to do this, but maybe they maybe they had thought that was a possibility that a wizard would do it. Yeah, that that I don't know that. Well, not that. Hmm. It, maybe they did even know that it was some kind of object or something, or that because they knew it was the chamber. Of, they did know that the chamber of secrets was somehow involved. Even and Dumbledore seemed more keen on that than everybody else. Um, but and by that point, he felt he had assured the teachers that he was sure it was something to do with that. And since he didn't know what, it sounded like he didn't know what kind of magic was involved, and that nobody did. So maybe. Maybe as silly as it seemed to bar students from it, they just weren't taking any chances because um, they just did not know what they were dealing with at all. I mean, what they should have done is just gone and ask Lockhart because he had all the answers <laughs> all along. I mean, obviously. <laughs> um, and speaking of Lockhart, I love in, in this next part here, you know, Harry's talking about how irksome it is to be walked to class by teachers and I just thought it was great. It definitely showed off his, you know, adventurous Gryffindor side. <laughs> um, and then here we are on page 266, uh, bottom of that page going into 267. There's a comment that Malfoy says. He says, I always thought Father might be the one to get rid of Dumbledore. I told you he thinks Dumbledore is the worst headmaster the school has ever had. And then it says, someone who won't want the Chamber of Secrets closed. McGonagall won't last long. She's only filling in. And I thought the comment kind of gave away the fact that, you know, he knew something about how the chamber got opened. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I mean. Oh, go ahead. I was just thinking if he would have known something about like his dad's involvement, wouldn't he have told um, Harry and Ron while they were polyjuiced as Crab and Goyle? Because he kind of just says, I wish I knew so I could help them. But then he wouldn't he have like said something different if he knew something about from about his dad's involvement. Mm, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Malf. I don't think Malfoy was 
in on that information. I think I think the fact that he's ranting in class just as he is is a sign that he doesn't know. Um, because <laughs> Malfoy, and that's probably why Lucius didn't tell him because yeah. he knows that Draco's still at that age where he kind of you know tries to boast what he knows. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a braggart still. I'm yeah. I'm more surprised that Snape is letting Malfoy get away with like or is listening to Malfoy's like obscene flattery in this scene yeah actually when i was (laughs) rereading that i thought the same thing i was like "Mm, yeah that's great and i'm sure snape appreciates it but that still seems like given like what we know about like snape and dumbledore's relationship that it seemed a little out of place but i guess maybe she sort of wrote that in so that there couldn't be anything guessed at this point well i mean snape does you know say you know back off dumbledore's only been suspended you know Mm, yeah that's true but Snape also just doesn't care. I mean, he lets he lets uh, people swear in class. Malfoy says mudblood, so. Mm, yeah. You know. And then there's, um, or actually right after that part, after Draco, you know, says mudblood, I thought it was great that Ron kind of got all angry at him, you know, defending huh. Hermione's honor. I thought it was right. cute. I think it was sad that Harry didn't. <laughs> like, <laughs> Harry sure isn't different to Hermione sometimes. He is, isn't he? Just seems to kind of not care occasionally. Ugh, over it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then we go on. We're in a lesson with Lockhart, and we're at the top of page 270 here, and he says that you people don't realize the danger has passed. The culprit has been taken away. And everybody kind of, you know, comes back him and says, why, why? You know, says who? You know, on what authority? And he says that the minister of magic wouldn't have taken Hagrid away if he hadn't have been 100% sure he was guilty. And, uh... I mean, do you think Lockhart is really naive enough to think that Hagrid opened the chamber? Or does he just really not care? I mean, Hagrid's Hagrid's kind of a giant teddy bear, despite the fact that he opens doors with crossbows, you know? Well, yeah, but he's pretty much the opposite of everything Lockhart is. Um, he's, you know, he's he's very rough and tumble. He's, he's not, it's kind of implied that Hagrid doesn't keep himself very clean. Um, and he he actually deals with the things that Lockhart claims he does, but of course we know he later on that he does not. Um, I think that's kind of where Lockhart's possibly general dislike for Hagrid comes from is that he's just everything he's not, and that I do think though that it is a mixture too of like Lockhart truly believing that Hagrid would be, would be capable of it and him not caring because. If he's naive enough as well to put all of his blind faith in the ministry um, and the decisions they make, that's that pretty much shows kind of how bright Lockhart is. Yeah, and you know Lockhart's uh, he he begins the book as a as a kind of you know a comic figure. He's a truly truly awful person. Like you know he's basically a sociopath, um, and I think one of these people who I don't think he has serious psychological theories about you know would Hagrid do this or not. Uh, he just, he'll say anything, you know, that will, um, keep his reputation, you know, safe and intact. He's really into manipulating other people. I find it very weird how Lockhart goes from a, you know, a, quite a funny guy to a seriously evil individual, um, who by the end is quite chilling. That's true. He does want to leave a bunch of teenagers to die. Yeah. Oh, not even teenagers, 12 and 13 year olds. Do you, so Lev, like writing characters like that, who make such a huge change in such a short span do you find that difficult to write 
Yeah, it is difficult. It's all. I mean, it's always especially chilling when um, a comic character turns bad. Um, somebody who you're used to thinking of as comic relief kind of you know lightens the tone and eases the tension. Uh, when they suddenly come back and you realize that they're a bottomless pit of evil, they seem especially evil and chilling because um, you're used to relying on them for a kind of you know for a, an easy laugh. Uh, mm-hmm. And Rowling's very good with that. She, um, I mean obviously, but uh, one of the things that I especially admire about her is her willingness to write evil characters, to, to give voice to evil. I mean, even just Draco in that series, in that exchange where he talks about, you know, pity it wasn't Granger. Um, it's kind of tough to write lines like that because they are so unpleasant. Uh, but Rowling really has a lot of discipline in terms of making people as bad as actual bad people really are. Um, uh, and she certainly doesn't hold back with Lockhart. Well, and the scary yeah. thing about Lockhart, too, is that she said that in the earliest books, at least, he's the only one who's based on somebody she knew. <laughs> right. Uh, I'd be terrified to meet that person in real life. Let's let's hope it's just his vanity. That she yeah, not, not, not what he's capable of. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, isn't it said here that Lockhart's wearing pink? For some reason, when Lev was talking, I got the idea of Lockhart in pink and Umbridge in pink. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, that's a good point. It doesn't look like it states specifically what he's wearing, no. but he's his attitude's just so Somewhere in this chapter, somewhere in one of these chapters he is in pink. I definitely remember reading that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, pink seems to be kind of a evil color to her, you know, it's Interesting, it's the yeah. pink the pink earmuffs aren't wanted. You know, the evil characters wear pink. I don't know. Just, just as a quick aside, of. this is slightly off topic, but I want to get Love's opinion on this. Love, I'm assuming you've read The Casual Vacancy, right? Wait, you have, because I read your review on it. That's right. So, because when you were talking about um, how she's so willing to write evil characters, that's immediately what popped into my mind. It's because I think it takes off on such another level in The Casual Vacancy. But that's that's so true about her writing. Yeah, that willingness to in, to inhabit uh, characters who are just profoundly unpleasant. And I was thinking about the casual vacancy too. And then I thought maybe I shouldn't say anything about it because it's not totally germane. But her, you know, that's where she really she really shows it off. Her ability to just reading these characters, you want to take a shower afterwards, and it's hard to imagine <laughs> giving voice to them. It's so tempting when you're writing to sort of say, oh, "Okay, but things weren't that bad," and then give somebody something slightly sympathetic to say. Um, but of course, the real world isn't like that, uh, and Rowling obviously knows that very well, and she's willing to put that on the page. And it's kind of harder than it looks if you ever tried. Mm. Yeah. I definitely felt like I needed to take a shower after the casual vacancy. <laughs> there was a lot there. I still haven't finished. Is that mad? Yes. No, no, no. I haven't finished either. So. Okay, but I'm, reading, I'm not. But I have an excuse because I'm reading it in a book in in a two person book club. So <laughs> I'm oh. a, I'm at a certain pace. I actually really truly am listening to the audiobook. No joke. Hmm. <laughs> and I did get it from Audible, just saying. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, so we're on page 271 now, and we've been talking a lot about Ginny and kind of the clues we've been getting about her distress throughout the book. And there's another one on this page where they're talking about kind of the quietness in the common room. And Fred and George, Harry and Ron are all playing Exploding Snap, and it says that Ginny sat watching them very subdued in Hermione's usual chair. And I just, I just, I got this feeling that Ginny must feel awful about Hermione because I think at this point she knows it's her. Yeah. Yeah. And I just can't imagine 
living with that feeling, knowing that it was her. But you know, that that actually raises a question for me for for Lev. I'm I'm actually wondering because as I was reading these chapters and remembering when I first read Chamber of Secrets, maybe it was because I was just in not an especially bright. 11 year old 10 year old but i did not catch the clues that it was jenny i didn't i threw that i threw all the clues away um at that age and i was just wondering what it's like to write those kind of clues into your material and how do you how you plan that out because i feel that she rolling does so carefully do that because almost every book i never guessed what was going to happen in the end um Rowling's, she's an outlier in that respect. I mean, I study her, you know, sometimes there's a couple of her diagrams uh, uh, online uh, where, you, where they show how she's sort of spreadsheeted out a whole book in advance. Um, and uh, I don't think anybody, I don't know of any authors who plan like her. I, uh, I often, um, I, I do this thing of, of, you know, I'll write and I'll put a lot of characters into play. I, I myself won't know who it is uh, who's done whatever the thing is. Uh, until much later in the book, and then I'll go back and plan a bunch of clues. Uh, but I, I often have to let the outcome sneak up on me. So even I don't know who it is, uh, you know, uh, while I, while I'm doing the initial pass, just to make it. So just to make sure that it's actually that difficult to guess. Um, so I, I have to fool myself initially, and then uh, fool the reader. Um, but I, th- I think Rowling knows what she's doing the whole time. She strikes me as one of those writers who's in total control. Uh, for the entire the entire um, the entire draft, and rereading this book actually, it really that stuff jumps out at you um, much more, of course, than it does in the first reading. Right. Yeah, we've been noticing a lot of these clues, and just I, even some of them I only kind of picked up this time around. And how many times have I read this book? Twenty, thirty. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's true. But yeah, poor Ginny, you just can't imagine her state of mind sitting in, in Hermione's chair. And thinking about, do you think it's dawning on her what's going on? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think it's starting to, at least. Yeah. Because yeah. doesn't she say something in the next chapter? I think she does, yeah. right? She yeah. wants to, yeah, she wants to bring it up with Harry. Yeah, I have that in the thing. Right, I thought so. Um, so at this point is when Harry and Ron decide that they're going to follow the spiders. And so they grab the invisibility cloak and they walk down out through the front doors, which, by the way, are not locked with magic. How crazy is that? (laughs) (laughs) And so they walk for almost an hour, about 50 minutes into the forest. You know, they're following the spiders, going through the trees and everything. And all of a sudden, the Ford Anglia is there and it just finds them. And (laughs) again, this made me think of Noah because like, is the car stalking them? Is it a stalker car? (laughs) The Anglia just misses the Weasley family. Is that what it is? so it, whatever, wants to be reunited and Ron (laughs) is there. That's what it is. Okay. Kind of his heart is calling out to him. Yep. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, so the pair, Harry and Ron and Fang, are caught by the spiders and they're taken to the kind of hallow ground where the, you know, where Aragog is. And Harry can understand the spiders because they're clicking and, you know, a little bit. And I was wondering, do we think Ron can hear the spiders for one? Or is it just Harry? And why? Is it because... If Ron can't hear the spiders and Harry can, is it because of his parcel mouth abilities that maybe he is more able to speak to animals? Kind of like the relationship he has with Hedwig. Like, it's such a close relationship. I know she's an owl and they're supposed to be smart in this world, but we know they're not smart in real life. So what do you think about that? 
I would I would say Ron probably can understand. He can, but we're just seeing it only from Harry's perspective. I I think yeah that I'd agree with that. I mean I I did think the only other time that I think we a major time we encounter in Akramanchula the other major times would be Goblet of Fire in the maze and then Deathly Hallows during the final battle and they don't talk to anybody then. Um and that's also from Harry's point of view. He never tries to communicate with the spiders again even though he probably could. But you know I I think Ron Ron can hear them, and that might, in fact, partially be why he's in shock. <laughs> I mean, if if it's already enough of a shock that you're being picked up by the thing you fear the most, and it's, like, inflated to ten times its size, and then it starts talking to you. <laughs> I would probably just die on the spot. Yeah, Jeez. no, that, that would be pretty terrifying. Actually, I started a discussion like this in my forum on um, the Alohomora boards about um, if you got to choose, like, which animal you could be able to communicate instead of a snake, like carries a parcel tongue, what would it be? Some pretty interesting answers. A lot of people say dogs, which I guess makes sense. Yeah, that's true. I do, I guess, I always look at my cats and say, or think, I wish I, wish I knew what they were thinking. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, anyway, so, um, oh, they're talking to Aragog, and they get all this information um, from her, it's a girl, right? Aragog's no, no, it's a Aragog. wife. It's a, it's a guy. Because he got him a wife. Right, he's got him a wife. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we learn. So we learn from Aragog that Her- that Hagrid did not indeed open the chamber. That the body from the victim was found in the bathroom, and that Aragog knows what lives in the school. And it even says that Hagrid asked him many, many, many times, but Aragog refused to tell him because spiders do not speak of it. And I was thinking that with Hagrid's background and his fascination with beasts, could he really not have figured it out? I feel at this point somebody would be making a little spreadsheet of things that can turn other people to stone. And, you know, one of the cells would say basilisk in it just so it would be on the table. You know, that box would be out there. Yeah. Well, but I feel like nobody does. That's the thing. Well, and if you look at if 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 and this is it possibly stretching canon, but if you were to take Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, the edition that came out um, as canon because it's implied that it is since Harry and Ron leave notes in it. The basilisk is in here. Um, it's on page three. So <laughs> if you look at it that way, it's it's not like it's it, the the basilisk, even though it's related to dark magic, isn't something that students wouldn't necessarily know about because it's in books that are easy access so right it's not like it's a horcrux where every book under the in the entire world is hidden on them and they have no idea right yeah it's kind of like nobody's really trying to (laughs) guess what this is right (laughs) i don't know it was just surprising that especially hagrid couldn't figure out what it was so then they find the, you know, they escape all the spiders thanks to the Ford Anglia again. And they're up in bed and, and Harry is sitting there to himself and there's a great line that says, the creature that was lurking somewhere in the castle, he thought, sounded like a sort of Lord, um, sort of monster Voldemort. Even other monsters didn't want to name it. And I, I thought, well, I mean, it is a monster version of Voldemort, right? Because it's controlled by, you know, his heir, so yep. I just, I just mm-hmm. thought that was a great parallel. Yep. And then right here on the last page, 
Harry kind of has an aha light bulb moment, and he sits up and he says, wait a minute, the girl that died in the bathroom? It's Moaning Myrtle. So that's it. I mean, as much that happened in that chapter, there actually wasn't that much that happened in that chapter. So... <laughs> Well, they do make a big discovery at the end. They do. That is very true. A good and it cli- start, sort of starts kicking everything into gear. Yeah, a good uh, cliffhanger. And Rowling's, you know, she's there's a lot of stuff paying off, just like almost paragraph by paragraph stuff that she's just carefully set up and just come back. Like yeah. the Fort Anglia, you know, she put so much into the Fort Anglia, she lets us forget about the Fort Anglia, and then there's the Fort Anglia again. And so great when it comes back, and you can tell that she was planning that all along, um, and you never see it coming. I personally love the Fort Anglia. It's one of my favorite characters in the series. I agree. Um, and I was almost, I was sad when it went off into the forest. I had this hope that it would become a recurring character and, you know, <laughs> would follow Ron around, um, and, you know, they would have more adventures with it. Um, I was sorry to see it go. I had I had the same hope. You did? Yeah, no, because she actually confirmed somewhere in one of her early interviews that it, the, the car was supposed to come back in six or seven, and she ended up writing it out, I guess, or just not putting it back in. But, yeah, no, I was, <laughs> I, I was thoroughly disappointed not to see the car come back. It should have come back in the battle at the end. Yeah, yeah. totally. Totally. It's because it's, ba- it's badass, obviously. I mean, it has serious. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this before, like how what happened to the car when it entered Hogwarts grounds and did it kind of get, a, you know, a sentient life? So what do you two think about that? Because we haven't talked about that with you. Levin, Michael. Um, yeah, it's hard to say, you know, what level of sentience it had along, at all, all, all along. And yes, whether it acquired something extra um, from either being in the forest or, or I tend to think that it, it had something going on all along. I don't think that just entering the grounds would necessarily have imbued it with a higher level of sentience that it already had. I think it was like a sort of a chitty chitty bang bang like entity. Uh, and it sort of kept it, kept it, kept it on the down low um, until it was out on its own. And then I think it got a taste of freedom and realized, you know, it sort of couldn't go back. That makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. I mean, I, I think, I think when you just in Rowling's world, when you imbibe something with magic that's not supposed to have it, it does kind of take on a little bit of. I mean, Ron, in the first chapters when they drive it to school, he does treat it like it's alive. He talks to it like, and I mean, that's that's something that I know I've done with my car before, and I've heard my friends do that, where you just if a, if your car's kind of given out on you, you'll just give it a little bit of a pat. Um, but I, I mean, I named my car, so yeah, my it car my, has a personality. My car's named too, so yeah, no, yeah, for yeah, sure. me too. <laughs> but I, I think the forest might have amplified it. Just because the 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 magic in there is so wild and untamed, that the car reflects its atmosphere because it's been so long in there. But I I do think it like Lev said I think it always had a personality once it had magic in it. So, and just as a side note, the the Fort Anglia always makes me think of Ford Prefect from Hitchhiker's Heart of the, Guide to the Galaxy, and it reminds us all that English car names are just inherently funny. Oh my god, that's so funny you bring up Hitchhiker's Guide because my car is named Marvin. Oh my gosh. So, that's really funny. Wow. Parallels all around. Yep. Okay, well that takes us into the second chapter for this episode, the title chapter, chapter 16, Chamber of Secrets. So, it's the next morning after Harry and Ron have discovered that it's all about Moaning Myrtle, but it's suddenly exams time, and this announcement... For some reason, the book explains that it drives the Chamber of Secrets from their minds. And I think this is really interesting because Hermione is obviously petrified and not there. And 
it's Harry and Ron that are getting the Chamber of Secrets driven from their mind because of exams. So I thought that was a little ironic, even yeah. though she's not there. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and sort of on the note of the exams, the students are pissed because they don't <laughs> think that they should be having exams amidst all these attacks. But McGonagall is pretty much like, nah, you're going to get your education because we're keeping the school open. So I'm just curious, like, what you guys side on this, because I stopped after I read this and thought about it a little. Like, is is this the right move to still press forward with exams, even though they're kind of thinking about "Mm, maybe we should be closing the school or I mean, what should they have done? As, As a student, I can see, you know, being upset and worried about it unless I wasn't affected directly. Then I would be like, oh, okay, whatever. Quite honestly, if I didn't know any of the people that were petrified, maybe I wouldn't care. If I was a pure blood, maybe I wouldn't care. I don't know. Hard to say. I, I may be the only person on the on the on the call who has children, but I have to say, if my child was going to a school where people were being petrified, whether or not they closed the school down, I would immediately withdraw my child. There isn't any question about what you do in that situation. Right. So it's, I think it's a little bit of a loss of perspective there. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> I yeah, I I felt kind of the same way thinking about it. I was like, if if I were a parent in the wizarding world, even even though everybody goes on about Hogwarts being the safest place, uh, there's not really a lot of evidence for that. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of stuff goes down there, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it does. I yeah, I I I would agree with Liv there. I would, I if I mean if I were a parent, yeah, I'd pull the kid out. If I were one of the students. Well, you know, it, and I think that also depends too on what background you come from. Like, if you're if you're Muggle-born and you don't know that much about what's going on, you may just be somewhat indifferent or confused. But if you're like a half blood or a pure blood and you know what's going on here, um, then that would probably make you a little more terrified. Or in the case of the Slytherins, you'd just be happy to be watching it all go down because you know you're immune. So it's it's there's actually a quite a variety, a wide variety of perspectives to take into account. And I guess McGonagall is taking orders from Dumbledore at this point. So she's not fully making her own decision. That's true. What would you do as a teacher, Caleb? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would think that if something like this happened, like school's like done, like no kids at the school, like whatsoever. Like I have this I just, like, teacher mentality of, like, kids should not be put in danger if there's even that risk of something like that happening. Right. So. You can sort of see it. It's like, well, if we if we, if we we don't have exams, that means the terrorists have won. You know, there's a point, I guess, to... Right, and I think mm-hmm. that's, like, McGonagall's mindset. I actually thought about that, like, being very Gryffindor, like, we're not going to let them beat us, so... Well, and it's been proven time and time again, and we're only, what, three quarters of the way of book two, that wizards just don't care. <laughs> they just Very don't care so. about their children being harmed. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so. and I think this is also along with it being McGonagall say being all gung ho and like let's go forth. Um I think it's also a mixture too of Dumbledore kind of being like let's watch this play out and see what Harry does. I'll put the whole school at risk to see what Harry does. <laughs> so, I do still yeah. think I know you guys had talked before about like how much Dumbledore kind of puppeteers everything in the background. And I think there's definitely something to that with all of this, because I'm sure he, he knows about Harry's struggle of Gryffindor versus Slytherin and how yeah. this, that this relates directly to him. I'm sure Dumbledore know, knows more than he lets on. So I'm sure. 
Well, Harry and Ron move on to the Transfiguration class, and McGonagall is having them turn rabbits into slippers, and I have decided we are not wearing those slippers. We're not having a <laughs> desk pig. Are we going to eat this desk that becomes a pig? Because that's just weird. Does Lev know um, about the desk pig? I don't, I don't does, know. Does he need to know about the desk pig? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Noah would say yes. Yes. I, yes. Basically, I think I basically, should be informed about the desk pig. Basically, it's there's a there's a transfiguration lesson. It's in Philosopher's Stone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, she's getting so she transfigures a desk into a pig, and so we like had well they had this really big discussion about whether or not <laughs> it would be okay or even nutritious to eat this pig after it has been changed from a desk into a pig. Right. We talked about it on about seven episodes so far. <laughs> the important things in life. Yeah, right. No, and have you come to a conclusion, or is it still kind of open? No, it's going to be the ongoing debate for the entire podcast. I'm pretty confident. Yep, yep. No, some of us are on the yes, we would eat it side. Some of us are on the no. So So basically, w- w- would you eat it, Lev? Would you eat the desk pig? <laughs> what, is, there, is there a danger that the, 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 the desk bacon would revert to... Uh... We, don't, we don't know. You're going to have to take that risk, Lev. <laughs> I do love bacon, and I would take almost any risk um, for the sake of bacon. Um, but that actually <laughs> might be a little bit too much. Yeah, because yeah. then you end up with wood in your stomach. Yeah, yep. which is yep. that's not good for anyone. No. <laughs> take that cellulose. It's, oh. it's magic Russian roulette. Just take the risk. That's right. <laughs> Right, so no bunny slippers. You got right, it. Right, no bunny slippers. But she does announce that the mandrakes are ready to be, well, Noah would say murdered, but she tells <laughs> us that they're ready to be cut. So it's like, yay, we're going to be able to save the, the petrified people. And um, I guess it's at another meal a little later. Jenny comes down and um, the, everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're going to be able to catch the bad guy because now we know, we know we're being able to actually restore the people who have been petrified. And Jenny comes and sits down looking all nervous. And just like um, Kat brought up in the previous chapter, this is kind of another one of those clues like, hello, how could we have not figured this out? I was just slapping myself for being like, you idiot. How could you not have figured <laughs> this out? Um, but I did, there was one really interesting quotation and it says with this, and this is describing Jenny, it says with a scared look that reminded Harry of someone. And he goes on to liken this to, to Dobby. And I thought it was really interesting because now Jenny and Dobby are tied together because they're both, well, first he likens them together and obviously they're both holding back information. Dobby knows what the Malfoys are doing. And or at least to some degree, and Ginny's obviously the one facilitating the attacks. So I thought that was a really interesting thing that I didn't catch before. Yeah, I definitely never caught that before. That's a good parallel. That's very true. But just as Jenny is about to, you know, maybe it sounds like she's going to confess to Harry or at least talk to he and Ron about what's going on. But freaking Percy comes in and ruins it. And I'm just, I just want to kick him. I want to melt his prefect badge and I want to light him on fire because he, (laughs) he thinks that Ginny is going to spill the beans about he and Penelope macking in the hall or something. And it's no, no one, no one cares about your life, Percy. So you just completely ruined everything. (laughs) Wow. That is some Percy hate going on. Yeah. Wow. It is. Why was that enough to stop Ginny from, from confessing? She just runs away. 
She, I mean, what's she afraid of exactly? Well, I think maybe it's because, like, Percy, she knows how Percy is, and if he figured out what happened, he would immediately go tell a teacher, whereas, like, Ron and Hermione, uh, Ron and Harry would not. That's true. That's my thought. <laughs> well, then she chose the wrong people to tell, because <laughs> Harry and Ron are just going to get themselves in more danger, and it's going to go crazy. Like, if she told a teacher, maybe things would be handled to some... I mean, I... I always think Ginny's such an odd character in the first probably about three or four books because she just, to me at least, she, she experiences just a total spin of character in book five. Um, and I know people who love Ginny are going to hate me for that. But I've I've always thought that Ginny's actions and her behavior, it, she's just, it's almost like she's barely written so that you don't understand why she does what she does. Because you really don't, we don't know her at all. Um, she just, she's just, she's a great piece for the plot because we don't know anything about her, so we don't know what she's going to do. It's probably just me, and this is sort of where my mind naturally goes, but of course I immediately was flashing forward to, you know, years later, Harry making out with Ginny and then thinking to himself, God, she still kind of reminds me of Dobby. And that just completely harshes <laughs> <parches> his buzz. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I know. It's just me. I know. It's just me. It's just me. That's my problem. No, no, no. There's probably a fan fiction out there. Well, yeah. If you think it, there's fan fiction. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so amidst all this, they've kind of like let Jenny drop off because they don't really think much of what she wanted to say. They've moved on. And Harry and Ron are still looking for this opening to get to uh, Myrtle's bathroom to talk to her to try to figure something out. But the problem is these teachers are still trying to, like, walk them to classes between halls. But they finally get an opening because, you know, Lockhart, he doesn't really want to be walking them around. He's having a real rough day. Sounds like he had to stay up real late to patrol the the corridors because his hair is not perfect. (laughs) And he didn't get his beauty sleep. So Harry and Ron are a little clever and talk him into not needing to walk them away. So Harry and Ron finally get their opening to talk to Myrtle. But before they even get there, they run into McGonagall. I thought this was a really interesting scene because Harry and Ron fib that they are going to see Hermione. And then McGonagall gets a little emotional. My homegirl's like tearing up because (laughs) she thinks that like, oh, of course, like your best friend's petrified. This is awful. Like this is awful that this is happening. And I don't think we really get that many emotional parts where we actually see like a tear from McGonagall. No, I felt really, I, I, I sort of, the first time I read this, I still remember, and I still kind of feel this way, I feel really bad for McGonagall that Harry and Ron just totally played on her emotions in the moment. I mean, I know they had to, but yeah, I, I'm sure, I could just picture them just looking at her with like wide quizzical eyes, just like, is she crying? Well, why is this happening? <laughs> why is Stop this happening it, right now? <laughs> It reminds me of how li- I feel like how little I know about Professor McGonagall. Obviously, this is resonating with something in her personal experience, uh, mm-hmm. but it's hard to say exactly what. Well, uh, so have you read her her backstory that was released on Pottermore? Did you get to that? Mm, I don't know if I did. So on her backstory in Pottermore, it talks about like how she let's see what what happens like she she falls in love. She definitely falls in mm-hmm. love, but the with the, the muggle, guy she's right the right well. The person she's like going to marry ends up dying, right? Yeah, oh, he yes. yeah. Seen this. yeah. Yep. So like she loses the person she's going to, lo- she's like intending to like be with, um, 
And so, like, that's where I think a lot of that pain comes it's from. It all fits together. Yeah. Well, and we get a lot of, like, unexpected emotional outbursts from McGonagall after this point throughout the series. This is her first real major one. Mm, um, yeah. But and, uh, even... That's the, like, the thing in the scene in the movie where... Um, something oh when harry comes back to hogwarts in the last movie and she says it's good to have you back and i'm just like ah that's (laughs) so great well and even i I think you i I kind of discount it usually but going back and reading through the series now um she does start off pretty passionately pretty emotional in the first time we meet her she's the one who's defending harry against the dursleys and saying that dumbledore's out of his mind to leave harry with them um, Dumbledore's very indifferent to her protests, um, so there th- there is early on a pretty like strong indication that she is a little more emotional than she will let on. Um, but yeah, th- I think this is the first um, unexpected outburst of it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess they felt bad enough from the emotion that they that she shows, and they do actually go and see Hermione, and it's a good thing because. Harry discovers a piece of paper in Hermione's hand, which, um, so he finds, um, he finds a book, a a sheet of, uh, excuse me, a page out of a book ripped out and also a little piece that says pipes. So it kind of makes me wonder about this scene where Hermione figured, sort of figured everything out and she figured out on her own. She figured out about the basilisk. She figured out about the pipes. Um, and then she suddenly, petrified so it's a really interesting scene kind of makes me wonder if anyone's like sort of written that scene like in a fan submission or something like that but i I always thought it was kind of funny that hermione like immediately bumps into penelope clearwater and that penelope clearwater believes her because yeah people don't usually listen to hermione (laughs) so like the first thing she says there's a giant snake in the pipes take out your mirrors (laughs) and like and you believe that (laughs) i mean if I was Penelope Clearwater, I mean, she's not a muggle-born. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I probably, if I was her, I probably wouldn't be all that worried. But Hermione does have a reputation of being pretty smart and knowing what she's talking about. Maybe she mm-hmm. shoved a mirror in Penelope Clearwater's hands. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> made her take it with so her. So this also made me think about, like, the timing of her figuring it out, then being petrified. So it makes me actually wonder, and I never thought about this before, is there any way the basilisk knows that or you know like riddle somehow knows through the diary that you know she's figured it out and that's why the basilisk is in this very unexpected place near the library to go after hermione was Ginny around when i was wondering that too when hermione said oh i think i figured something out i need to go to the library i don't think she was because they were headed down to quidditch right Hmm. Yeah, so she wasn't around for that, but maybe she was around at right, the library. Right, right. So we never. She probably would have been. She probably would have been in the chamber with the basilisk. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hmm. So, hmm. just something I thought about. I don't know. That'd be one smart basilisk. Right. So in this piece of paper from the book, we figure out all this stuff about the basilisk, and we find out that this creature is born from a chicken's egg hatched beneath a toad. Ugh, that is the most gross. But, like, and also, we have spiders are afraid of it. And then, finally, that, for some reason, this big, bad, scary thing 
can be killed by a rooster's crow. Why? Why, why does that happen? That's I don't know. I they are know. pretty obnoxious. Have you ever lived in the country? <laughs> oh, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, when, I they, up, yeah. when they crow at five in the morning, it could kill me. But I don't know. This is so interesting. Maybe there's something with like the lore behind it that's like beyond the story. I just thought that was kind of it's a lot going on there. Chicken eggs, toads, crowing. I don't know. It sounds like a biblical story. That has but. to be a large toad because chicken eggs are significantly larger. You know, imagine a toad sitting on an egg. <laughs> also, who moves the e- who moves the egg, or does the the toad just come plop on it? It's gonna <laughs> have to be like a cane toad or some you know really significant toad. Right. Yeah. It's definitely an intentional thing because a toad wouldn't just come and sit on an egg. Yeah. Hey guys, see an egg. Let's go chill on it. That's right. Exactly. Rabbit. All right. <laughs> anyway. Just, just, I want to know, if people out there know more about basilisks, let us know. Why, why does the rooster's crow kill it? I want to know that. My son, uh, my baby son, who's, who's, who's three months old, whose name is Baz, um, we actually call him Basilisk, um, just because you tend to give your, <laughs> your children humiliating nicknames because they can't, you know, retaliate. Um, but this kind of reminds me of how sort of horrible <laughs> basilisks are. Right. Maybe it's not the term of affection that I, you know, was sort of thinking of it as. Does he have Does he have eyes that kill? No, he doesn't, which is, it makes it all the more inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. So after Harry and Ron have processed what Hermione's figured out years ago because she's so much smarter, um, they go to tell McGonagall, and they're like, oh, we're going to go find her in the staff room. Um, but as they're getting there, McGonagall announces that students are needing to go to the dormitories immediately and all teachers to the staff room. So we know something's up. And Harry and Ron hide in the staff room to eavesdrop on what's going on. And we find out that a student has been taken into the Chamber of Secrets, and it's Jenny. And for me, I don't know, this was kind of really unexpected. Um, Even though, like, there's those hints that, like, something's clearly going on with Jenny. Um, Like, the first time reading, like, hearing that Jenny has suddenly been taken was, like, a bullet to my chest. I could not believe that that had happened the first time I read it. Yeah, I mean, because she is part of a pretty significant family in the series. Yeah. So, But I mean, and, the, sorry. No, go for it. I was going to say, the thing that I thought of is, I mean, naturally, of course, if you're going to the staff room to tell a staff member about something super duper important, and then all of a sudden every staff member is going to the staff room, naturally you're going to hide in the closet. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. that makes no sense. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you just wait there and then tell her? I, yeah. I don't know. Well, you know Harry's mentality. <laughs> let's I, find out as time Ron just much as think, we so. let's find out as much as we can and then go act on it ourselves rather than tell anybody. Right. <laughs> and I was think I don't know if it struck well. anybody else that way, but but that line, her skeleton will lie in the in the chamber forever. It was one of those moments of like real serious creepiness. It's sort of in the whole series when I remember when I read that and I just got a little bit freaked out by it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no. It's chilling. It's chilling. It is. And that's why I was thinking, like, thinking about Ron, I can't even imagine hearing something like that happening to your sibling. Like, I think about my siblings. Like, if I would have been sitting there and heard something like that, I, I don't even know, like, how I would react. It's awful. It depends on the sibling. I mean, some siblings I would feel <laughs> upset about, and others just, you know, mildly disconcerted. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Um, so there's this really great moment then in the staff room where Snape decides to call Lockhart out because all along Lockhart has been talking about he knew all along if they would have just asked him he would have figured it out that Hagrid did it so on so forth and he wants to send Lockhart in and I am fully behind it but Lockhart of course tries to make a run for it and um, he goes back to his he tries to get out and says oh yeah I need to go to my room and prepare everything but Harry and Ron go there and find him packing up and we get Lockhart's story finally and we find out that he has done nothing that he says he did in his books, but actually he's just really awesome at memory charms and has used them on all of these people who have done these amazing things and then taken their stories. And it's interesting because it makes a point to, he makes a point to describe how unattractive these people are that did things. Like, my, my idea is that Lockhart thinks, well, they're not very good looking, so... Mm, probably better for someone good looking to think for people to think did this stuff. So I'm just going to fix that for them. But my thing in this, in this section was I was surprised that kind of, I, I know they find all this stuff out about Lockhart now, but I was surprised that Harry decided that this would be the plan to go talk to Lockhart because first of all, they knew that the teachers had sent him off with the intention of him not doing anything. Um, they were trying to get rid of him. They say that in the staff room. Um, and then they're like, oh, yes, let's let's go tell him what we know. And I'm thinking Lockhart has done nothing to prove that he's capable of anything. And these two are probably the biggest characters in the series who don't believe him the whole time um, from the start. And so they're putting their faith in Lockhart, of all people. That did surprise me that. And I know, like you, like you were saying, Caleb, they end up finding out all this information for sure after the fact, after they go to him. Um, right. I just thought it was a bit surprising that they decided to put their information, they put that valuable information to Lockhart. Right. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. That That's a very odd choice. I, Going from McGonagall to Lockhart. Yeah, I thought McGonagall would be more trustworthy. So, because I, I don't think McGonagall, like, I, I get the feeling that Harry and Ron just assume that they're going to leave Ginny down there because they don't have any game plan to go get her because um, they don't know where it is. Uh so right I, yeah because I, I mean i agree i don't think the staff would be thinking oh let's all get down there now they're thinking i mean as sucks as much as it sucks you know we've got to like do what's needed for all these other students even though it you know it is going to be bad news for this one student but we have to think of the for lack of better phrasing the greater good here yeah yeah so i don't know i guess if i were harry though and i had to put my in my trust in one of the teachers i'd rather have mcgonagall come down to the chamber of secrets with me than lockhart <laughs> Can someone remind me uh, how how famous was Rowling at the point when she was writing this? Because she often writes about fame and the nature of fame and, you know, the way the media creates fame uh, with the whole sort of Rita Skeeter um, thread. Uh, was she writing about fame from the outside or was she already famous um, at this point? She said, hasn't she said before that her fame kind of peaked around like the weight between prisoner and goblet? And that's where it got really crazy. Um, that would make most, yeah, that would make more sense. I don't think she's quite captured the fame that she's going to by the time she's writing Chamber of Secrets. Obviously, like, she's got a book deal, you know, and she knows good things are coming, but I don't think it had re- really reached that epic es- level yet. Especially in the U.S., because doesn't, I mean, Chamber comes out quite a bit later in the U.S. than it did in the U.K. Yeah, same with true. Same with the first book. Well, and it's also, uh, it's it's kind of a running motif throughout all seven books about fame, because Harry's dealing with it from the beginning. 
So hmm. Lockhart's kind of a foil to what how Harry tries to deal with his fame um, in that respect. So it's I don't know if Lockhart was necessarily a, refre- a reflection of what Rowling was going through at the time so much as he was just supposed to be a foil to Harry. So after Harry and Ron figure out Lockhart's story, he tries to use a memory charm on them because obviously he doesn't want anyone to know what he did. But um, they disarm him and Harry makes a little jab or I can't remember if it's Harry or Ron now, but make a jab about him teaching them how to disarm during the dueling club. So that kind of comes back to bite him. But they lead Lockhart to the bathroom and we finally get this conversation with Myrtle and she... um, actually seems very willing to talk about her story of her death. And I really thought it was um, interesting, the the text on how one becomes a ghost. It's something we've talked about on the show before, and this is really um, a really descriptive part where Myrtle talks about her own experience. And it says, My whole body sort of seized up, and then I was floating away. She looked dreamily at Harry. And then I came back. I was determined to haunt Olive Hornby, you see. Oh, she was sorry she ever laughed at my classes. So I thought that was interesting because when it comes to why she came back, she never really discusses this unwillingness to sort of move on to whatever's next after life. But instead, it's sort of this seemingly bent on revenge for Olive Hornby that sort of attaches Myrtle to the world still as a ghost. Yeah, which is the exact opposite of what, you know, JK has said about why somebody decides to become a ghost. Mm-hmm. That's, hmm. I and never it's definitely I never what about Nick that. talks about, you know, why people stay behind as ghosts. Right. Well, so this, this makes it seem like, I'm sorry, Michael, this okay. makes it seem like it's more of a moment that happens exactly when you die instead of kind of a premeditated thing. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, because I, 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 I thought she did say that, like, unfinished business can tie you back to the world if as a ghost like if you're so consumed by it um as and yeah because in her world you have to be a witcher wizard to become a ghost um but i mean i guess when you look at it you know myrtle was what was she like 12 11 12 she wasn't she wasn't very old when she died right and you know what are the what are the most like horrible things in the world to put upon 12 year old um what's going to consume them like is it going to be you know the really important things like their future and so forth or is it going to be what's in the moment um and so myrtle dies and comes back as a ghost and she chooses to come back because olive's teasing of her is the only thing that she's focused i mean that's the only thing she talks about in death too pretty much other than being dead um so I, I I thought that kind of went along perfectly with how Rowling described why people become ghosts. I I, I she she didn't really have seem to have an interest in moving on almost. Like she's she's what? Like I said, twelve. Like that's not the kind of thing she probably was thinking about. So Is Myrtle more um physically tied to the bathroom and to that particular spatial location than the other ghosts are tied to a particular room? Yes. Yeah, it definitely seems like it, yeah. She, yeah, I think there's a, I don't know if it's on Pottermore or somewhere else, but it does talk about how, like, she used to want, it is on Pottermore, she used to wander around the whole school, like, bothering Olive, and she left Hogwarts to bother Olive, but then the ministry put a sanction on her that she had to stay in Hogwarts in the bathroom 
I think. So. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. I forgot about that. In the bathroom or just at Hogwarts? I think she's. I think she's in the so bathroom maybe she, just yeah, because. In, yeah, because she died yeah. there. Right. Yeah. I think it just because it's a familiar place. She's she's a pretty morose character. So. What a lonely, awful existence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fantastically dark, isn't it? When you think about it, it's like it's a dead girl in a bathroom <laughs> that they're chatting with. I, I I don't know. If you think about it too long, it kind of it's the kind of the thing with Lockhart. Like it goes from being funny to being really really disturbing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, after they get, after they get this story from Myrtle, they um they figure out you know the entrance is here in the bathroom because of how Myrtle describes how she was killed and she saw those eyes. Um, And so they're trying to get to the, they're trying to open the sink up because they think that's the entrance. And Harry eventually gets it open by speaking in parcel tongue. And it was a really cool Gryffindor speaking from a Gryffindor moment that like they, they had this, this second where there's no question when they look down that they're going down in there to save Jenny. And it's like no hesitation whatsoever. And it's just such a perfect Gryffindor moment. But um, they, when they get down there, <laughs> they come across a snake skin from a snake that is 20 feet long. And I am suddenly hyperventilating as I read it because I have this awful terror of snakes. Just imagining coming across a snake skin that's 20 feet long. Especially vivid poisonous green. Oh, yeah. Ugh. I'm with you on that one. Gross. I'm weirdly more freaked out by Aragog than I am by the, the Basilisk. I mean, I, I know, and I know that's sort of wrong and out of whack. Just spiders. I don't think that's necessarily weird. I mean, I know a lot of people who, are, who have much bigger problems with spiders than snakes. So, and especially since Aragog's so big. I do. I mean, Aragog would scare the crap out of me. <laughs> I would be like Ron sitting there in the silent scream. <laughs> you, you can't you can't see it, but I'm doing it now. No, I, I'm, I'm I'm terrified by both. That's why I'm in Hufflepuff. I don't have to conf- I don't have to deal with these things. <laughs> are you saying Hufflepuffs are scaredy cats? No, I'm saying that we just don't go looking for confrontation. Oh, yeah, us us eagles don't either. So it's cool. I'm with you on that one. See, there's a plus for you, Lev. It's, yeah, no, it's, we like it. We we stay in the comfort zone, and I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Lockhart gets this like last hurrah moment where he's able to wrestle Ron's wand away from him and he's like, no, this is the end. And he talks about how he's going to take them up and bring some of the snakeskin to show um, like what happened to build the story. And so he's going to obliviate Ron and Harry. And when he tries to, because he's using Ron's broken, busted wand, it backfires and Later, we find out what happens to Lockhart. But right now, all we know is like everything, things are falling and crumbling all over the place. And Harry is suddenly separated from Lockhart and Ron, and he is just alone. And this made me think immediately about Philosopher's Stone because here Harry is all alone, about to take on the final part of this this localized battle of this book. And I think it's kind of interesting because in book one, Ron is the first to exit in the chess game, and then Hermione does with the potions, but it's flipped in this book. Hermione sort of figures everything out and is kind of sidelined because of the petrification, and now second is Ron who exits. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it's it's still Harry by himself to take it on. Per Dumbledore's hand. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's one of my rare, rare, rare moments of frustration with the series in that I felt like 
the the rock slide that separates two characters neatly is like a is a tiny bit of a cliche. It's sort of convenient. Like obviously he she needed Harry to be to be isolated on his own. So bang, right. it's like you know well, we'll never get this out of the way. I'll just have to go off by myself. Right. Yeah. No. I've 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 I feel the same way usually in pretty much any point in the series when Harry gets separated from anybody because <laughs> it does feel. It, 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 I always think it's just funny because throughout the series, Harry, you know, Ron and Hermione are always saying, oh, we'll go with you. You don't have to do this alone. And then he always does it alone. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true. That's interesting because as you said that, I was sort of like running through your books in my head, love. And I guess there's there's not really that many moments where Quentin is sort of by himself. You, you, I don't think you ever really do that sort of cliche separation. Right. Well, it happens once or twice, but there's no rock slides. I have a right. no rock slides rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the end of the chapter, Harry and Ron have this um, this really difficult parting where they're separated by this rock slide, and um, it's kind of like they want to avoid the emotions because they're you know trying to be tough guys. And um, but Harry keeps going on, and he eventually comes to one more barrier, and um, he speaks in parcel tongue to open it, and that's where the chapter ends. It's a good cliffhanger. I like yep. that. Mm-hmm. You definitely don't stop. You keep going. Right. It says it. it says he's shaking from head to toe as he you know as he walks inside. That's he's terrified that Gryffindor. Yeah. I love the way she works out how you know how the how the parcel tongue kind of comes out of him that he needs to first with this in, the, in front of the sink he needs to pretend that there's a real snake there. I love just the way she's thought through not just what magic might look like or you know, what kinds of things magic could do, but what would actually feel like to, to do magical things yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that too, that the magic is, it's not just you wave your wand and say something. Like you have to feel to it. Feel it. You have to feel it. It has to come out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's partially created by your emotions. It's dependent on emotion. So. Yeah, I think that helps make it more relatable. Like, as mm-hmm. someone reading it, you could imagine how you would feel standing there trying to trying to do those things. All right. So uh, the, uh, our next segment is the special feature. The Beast Inquisition. Hagrid, is that a dragon's egg? Yep. What I got there is a Norwegian Ridgeback. They're rare, them. Hagrid, you live in a wooden house. Today we're talking about basilisks and spiders, um, and just to preface this, Rosie came up with all of these concepts. I'm not going to pass these off as my own because I'm I'm going to try not to butcher these. Um, but they are there are some really great ideas in here, and I'm hoping that I can lead the conversation the way she was thinking. Um, so she starts out pointing out that these two beasts that we encountered one chapter right after the next. Um, are giant versions of regular animals. Um, we see a giant spider and a giant snake, which are both very common phobias. And so is this a suggestion of the increased size equals increased fear? For me, absolutely. Like, <laughs> like yeah. I have no problem killing a, you know, or, oh, that's bad, I'm sorry, um, of... <laughs> Of removing a spider from my home that is, you know, a half an inch in size as opposed to, what is she, like, or he, like, eight feet, like, ten feet wide, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yes, definitely increased size equals increased fear. Definitely for me. 
Well, and I guess the point to bring up too then is like why, and maybe Lev can answer this from a writer's perspective, but why here? Why this point in the story? Why this point in the series even? Because, I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm not seeing too many other giant monsters that we encounter other than the literal giants. Um, in the last book, we don't encounter too many enlarged animals like this again. Um, and certainly not back to back like this. So why, why did she place them here? It also seems like we, we get a lot of like large things in general. Like you think back to the first book, we have Fluffy, who's certainly an enlarged dog. Mm -hmm. And then like in the future, we will get like when, um, he's in the maze and the goblet of fire, we get like a sphinx and we get another Aquamantula. Yeah. And, um, then obviously there are dragons later on in that book and then in the future that are obviously huge. So I feel like there's just a lot of big equals bad. Yeah, although maybe less and less as the series goes on. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if you if you guys have any personal experience of, of phobias. Um, I actually have trouble with phobias myself. I've got a couple. And uh, there is that sense uh, where you just lose all sense of perspective. And even though a spider is... I must admit, a relatively small creature. You know, it feels as though it's it, it's larger than you. And there's, of course, rationally, you know, it's more scared of you than you are of it. Uh, it feels just massive and it can uh, devour you. Mm, yeah. Do, do we think this speaks at all to the fact that this is still technically a kid's book? And that, you know, she's trying to make everything kind of larger than life. Well, that's what that's what I was thinking of. You know, you have that sense of not of being a child, not just literally being small, but also, um, you know, things like that seeming really, really major. And as the series goes along, it becomes much more about politics, about good and evil, more abstract things. But here, you know, in the second book, um, it's still it's the fears, the, 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 it's children's fears rather than, you know, the fears of, of, of teenagers or grownups. Yeah, it fully realizes what you were talking about, how that phobia is. You see it as something much larger than it is. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's that's actually an interesting idea, because I, I, I even remember, like, a dog that we used to have when I was, like, little, little. And when I asked my dad how big that dog was, he was like, oh, it's just just a tiny little thing. But I remember the dog being really, really big. Um so I, I can see that. I, I mean, when I read Chamber of Secrets, I was about 10 or 11. Um, so it was pretty terrifying to me, the thought of a giant snake or a giant spy. Like, I'm just, I'm out the door with both. Like I said, Hufflepuff, don't have to deal with that stuff. Um, but, um, and then there, Rosie also pointed out that the basilisk, I guess, in certain mythologies, and I have heard about this before, is actually supposed to have a weakness to the weasel. Um, which is not mentioned in the book, but could we infer that as being something related to Ron and Ginny and their connection with the basilisk? Hmm. I mean, they're but not... If, go ahead. Go ahead, Caleb. Well, I was just thinking, if the basilisk has a, a weakness with the weasel, then the basilisk doesn't really show a weakness to Jenny. If anything, it shows command over Jenny. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But then again, it's, well, and it's not, I guess Ron is part of the thing that sort of takes the basilisk down, but. Yeah, because it's really hairy. Um, but, I mean, I guess, hmm, it's hard to say how much involvement Ginny has, because she's pretty much possessed by it, and then she falls asleep at the end. So, 
she's not too involved with the taking down of Tom Riddle. Yeah, but I mean, she definitely is active in its downfall. I mean, if her, if Ginny had never kind of trusted the diary and the diary never kind of, you know, tried to come out into her. That's true. So the, the fact that it chose a Weasley is almost its downfall from the start, you could say? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it chose the wrong... That makes sense. It chose the, the Weasley's weasel. And then Harry Potter was happened to be there, too. Um, and she has listed here that spiders are an obviously an extremely... Co- okay. I think we've talked about spiders in fear enough that we don't need to highlight that one again. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, and then she... I did think it was weird that... Sorry. I did think it was weird that Aragog was blind. I thought it was a fascinating touch. Um, and just one, sort of a wonderful detail that made Aragog feel that much more real. But I also thought, was there a backstory to that that I was missing, Aragog's blindness? Um, I don't remember anything. Yeah, as far as the series goes, we haven't been given any information. But actually, I mean, oh, oh, go ahead, Kat. I was going to say, is he really blind, or does Harry just think he's blind? Oh, I think he's blind. He's I got think, milky yeah, eyes. It, it, it's, yeah, it blatantly says that he's blind, and I guess maybe it just has to do with his old age because we know he dies in just a couple of books, but well, that's she, the only thing I could think of. Yeah. And she makes clear that he's old cause his hair is gray too. Um, right. But actually Rosie brought up the idea that, um, is there a significance to that uh, as the idea of blind justice? Um, because I guess how it's, it's almost like, I guess he's holding court with Harry. Um, hmm. and also the, what information he gives Harry, um, as far as Hagrid's innocence, um, hmm. See, I, I think maybe he just has cataracts or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why would his eyes be white if he was blind? I don't know. I'm just I'm not really I, good I'm, with eyes. I'm just saying. And pretty isn't that like a thing though with blindness? Is that the sometimes the eyes are well, and even if he had cataracts, he wouldn't be able to see very well. Um, right. Well, that's no, I know. So I he just, would basically be blind. As being devil's advocate. No, that was good. Really tangentially, I was always shocked that 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 Aragog was willing to feed uh, Harry and Ron to his progeny. Um, <laughs> I thought that was especially awful. Like I was sort of, I was actually feeling a grudging amount of respect for Aragog, and the, you know the loyalty that he showed to Hagrid. Um, but, you know, that ended when he was willing to um, feed Hagrid's friends to his kids. Uh, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I love his goodbye line, too. Goodbye, friend of Hagrid's. Yeah. <laughs> <Like>, what what <laughs> stops them from going out into the grounds and just eating them whenever? If that's the, if, if that's the case. I mean, is it just Hagrid? Must be. It must be. Because by, by Deathly Hallows, they do. So right, that's true. Um, mm. Yeah, they're. Well, but that's because Aragog is dead. I think. Yeah, that's true. There's. Yeah, they have no. Then. So yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think it's Aragog that keeps them at bay. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like the leader of the. Well, he is Papa, right? It. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Rosie also brought up. Um, oh God, and forgive me, guys, because I haven't. I've only read The Hobbit. Is. Is the giant Shalob? Thank you, <laughs> Shalob. Yeah, <laughs> I felt so bad. Um, but Rosie brought up the Hobbit and Shalob and the giant spider. Um, is that a reference? She she also pointed out um, the roots of Shalob's name. Lob is an 
ancient English word for spider, um, and Aragog, Arachnid, Gog, possible reference to Gogmagog, a legend. <laughs> that's a great name. Um, a legendary <laughs> giant. Um, and is that also a reference to his connection to Hagrid? Um, wow. Possibly. Yeah, she, she thought this through. This is very good. Pretty awesome connection. Yeah. And I mean, we obviously know that Rowling is definitely up with her mythology and mm-hmm. she uses. She's very purposeful in her root using, so I wouldn't be surprised at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's really good with names. Mm-hmm. She's very, very clever. Obligatory genius moment. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and not the first time that there's been a pretty blunt reference to Lord of the Rings, and not the last. Um, as right. far as cre- even as far as creatures go, I know a lot of people point to the Ringwraiths versus the Dementors, and. This definitely seems to be pulled from. I I I, I guess this is another question for Lev as far as like adaptation, and because I know a lot of people just accuse her of straight out stealing, and other people are saying, well, it's fair because is literature is this a point at literature where nothing is strictly original, or is it always some kind of adaptation? But it's what you do with that adaptation, so on and so forth. Yeah, well, it's particularly a problem within the fantasy genre. I would say even, you know, obviously all literature alludes to, to other literature and, and, and borrows from it. I think this is a particular, fantasy novels tend to, sh- to share even more DNA with other fantasy novels uh, than, in, than in other genres. You can't invent magic wands or dragons or centaurs. Uh, you know, you're always pulling from the mythology uh, and you know you're you're you know you're dealing with um, you know fantasy tends to be about really deep sort of subconscious themes um, that you know get represented in kind of a limited number of ways. There are some sort of some permanent human symbols that that tend to come back in fantasy. So I personally tend to be extremely forgiving uh, when it comes to uh, you know the way that uh, that that the same kind of creatures and monsters tend to recur book to book, uh, and especially Rowling who comes at th- comes at um, her material with you know a very fresh and kind of original um uh uh just point of view i mean you don't you it's pretty rare when you have a giant spider uh, who actually speaks uh and it's a rare writer who can con- kind of convincingly give voice to uh to a giant spider uh and i think aragog is very much himself you know and 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 not a lift from anywhere else hmm. mm-hmm. do you think there's I mean, even with maybe not just creatures, but other examples, but more egregious steals on Rowling's part from other places, or do you kind of take that view with all of what she's created that she's done it all so much her she's made it so much her own that it's okay, or are there specific examples that maybe aren't so much that? Well, it's it's funny. I mean, everyone everyone has their has their pet peeves. Uh, I know Ursula Le Guin has complained a bit that that Rowling didn't give uh, Le Guin more credit for uh, pioneering the kind of magic school setting in her uh, in Wizard of Earthsea. You know, which I feel sort of fair enough. Um, but fantasy is always kind of a fast and furious game. I mean, you look at C.S. Lewis, who I think of as you know being a major precursor for Rowling. So Lewis stole from everyone. I mean, he wanted Santa Claus. He put Santa Claus in, you know, centaurs, pan, uh, uh, the wood between the worlds was a borrow from uh, his friend William Morris. He actually 
took a place name out of Tolkien and just stuck it into his books because he felt like it. That was his thing. He wasn't really big into, I guess, this whole thing of, of intellectual property. He's just sort of thought, well, if, if you could find a use for something in your story, you ought to put it in. Um, uh, and, you know, I think, um, I, I think that, that, that goes for, for Rowling as well. She's sort of wonderfully acquisitive. Uh, you know, she's a magpie and she picks things from all sorts of traditions and puts them in her writing. And her writing has so much of its own flavor and personality that, um, you know, it just doesn't feel like anybody else's thing. I feel like in literature, if you, if you, if you could make something your own, then that gives you the right to steal it. Um, and I think that's true of just about everything she does. I mean, look at her wands. I mean, everybody has wands in their in their fantasy novels, wands and staves. But, you know, who tells you what is inside the wand? You know, who tells you how the wand is constructed? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's ro- that's rolling only. Uh, and that's how she makes things her own. Hmm. Yeah, oh, that's very true. Yeah, no, her world building, I guess, goes beyond just, it's not so much stealing as she does actually transform it so much into her own. Th- and she, I also feel too that she kind of does give a fair amount of respect to her roots. She she doesn't just take these things and not tell anybody that she got inspired by this or this or this. I know she's especially she's been especially reluctant to admit stuff about the Hobbit. Um, there's a lot of talk about that. I know in the Potter fandom about she says that she didn't really take she she doesn't talk about it a lot, but friends of hers claim she carried it around all the time. Um, oh, that's funny. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's 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 it, it, you get varying accounts on how much she talks because she talks more, um, she talks more about like she lo- she talks a lot about her love for Jane Austen, um, and mystery novels actually, um, rather than fantasy. I mean, to me, that's more the tradition that she writes in. She certainly doesn't write in the epic fantasy tradition. You know, uh, uh, it's very much about this kind of secondary world thing. You know, with people going from the from the mundane world to the magic world. Um, you know, the, you don't get this this big thing of huge massed armies fighting each other all the time. Uh, it's not so much that Dungeons and Dragons vibes. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons vibe. Um, she's much more interested in psychology and kind of interior dramas, which is yeah, it's much more Jane Austen. Um, uh, it's much more in that vein. Uh, so I kind of tend to not connect her to Tolkien, uh, but of course, yeah, there are debts there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and who who? Quite honestly, who cares if she borrows a couple of things? I mean, <laughs> eh, the the stories are great, and, and she is paying homage to them, you know, with, you know, like her naming here of Aragog specifically. Like, that's, I don't know, I think that's great. Yeah, I don't think she ever ignores her the roots of what she... Right. Yeah, borrows, for sure. So, exactly. Sorry, we've gotten that's actually, a little off track. Well, but that's actually one of my favorite parts of your book's love, is because you come out and make the references to either Tolkien or Lewis or even Rowling um, as the characters are just going about their, their daily business. And that's, I, I love those parts so much. Yeah, it's great. All right. Yeah, no, I think that's all the points. I mean, the other point you had here was that not only is, do we have giant spiders, but we have little spiders and medium-sized spiders and that's creepy. But I think we all agree on that at this point. Yeah, it's very creepy. Spiders are creepy at all sizes and in large numbers. I feel very worried about where those little spiders are going because, you know, are they actually crawling on Ron and Harry? Ah. I just, it's something that she leaves again to the imagination, and that's where my imagination automatically goes. Spiders, little spiders up their pant legs, just going everywhere. (laughs) Oh, that's awful. Oh my God. You just made everybody listening to this cringe. I just, that's what I was going for. And if I got there, yeah. No, that's you great. Did. That's, well, because actually in the, in the Chamber of Secrets, the 
PC video game, there are little spiders that just crawl all over you if if, Harry, if you let Harry just stand still. Like they just start coming up your body until you Ew. until you move and then you step on them, but they keep coming and like numerous. It's it's terrifying. It's it's game and it's terrifying. That, that that's going to be my nightmares tonight. See, I think this cat, <laughs> you and me and and Lev are just going to be like sitting in the great hall, just comfortably chatting about all this crazy stuff going on at Hogwarts, and Caleb's going to be doing all that crazy stuff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Totally Always. true. All right, so now it's time for our question of the week, and I'm going to take it over this week. So we talked earlier about when Myrtle brings up about how she died and how she became a ghost. And we talked um, some about how she was bent on revenge, on pestering Olive Hornby for making fun of her, and whether this really fit with um, Rowling's previous explanation about why certain wizards and witches become ghosts. So we're tossing it to you as to whether you think does Myrtle's decision to come back to sort of haunt Olive Hornby fit with that explanation that there's not there's sort of unfinished business and um, not really ready to move on, as sort of Michael explained um, in his idea, or does it sort of go against what Rowling has said about why people choose to be ghosts? And this will be typed up in a much more concise manner for when we post it, but that's kind of where... We're going this week. We want to know what you guys think about um, the way Myrtle chose or became a ghost. Sounds good. And uh, speaking of Michael, we just want to say thank you very quick for filling in last minute. Uh, Rosie was out sick this week, so thanks for picking that up. You're welcome. Yeah. And Lev, of course, thank you so very much for being here. It was absolutely great hearing from an author, you know, the point of view of somebody who also writes. It's because... I do not have a creative word in my body. So thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. Uh, it, was, it was super fun just to sit here and geek out about it. just shows how much there is in these chapters that you can just sort of kind of go down and down to them forever. Yeah, we're constantly amazed with the things we come up with, quite honestly. <laughs> Find me in the Hufflepuff common room, Lev, and we'll just sit and talk about how ridiculous Hogwarts is while everybody else is fretting. Good, done. I would be up for that. All right, so if you are interested in either being featured on the show or being a guest host yourself, to be a guest host, you should email a clip to our Gmail account, alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. Make sure that you're doing so with appropriate audio and recording equipment because it's really important to be on the show. But another way that you can be featured on the show is if you submit really excellent content either on the website or the forums, and we will read your awesome insight just like we did on today's episode. And in the meantime, if you just want to stay in contact with us, you can follow us on Twitter at MN, And of course, don't forget to follow the Mandrake uh, Liberation Front at Mandrake Forever. <laughs> and we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore on Tumblr at mnalohamora.tumblr.com. And, of course, we have our phone number, which is 206-GO-ALBUS, so 206-462-5287. And, of course, our website is alohamora.mugglenet.com. And our email, one more time, alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, don't forget about iTunes. You can subscribe to us on there, and the new episodes will automatically download. Yeah, and also on iTunes, leave us some feedback on there because we love to read the reviews mm-hmm. that you guys give us on there. Um, those are really great. 
but also to remind you that we have a really awesome smartphone app that you can download. You can get the info on our website about, but it's available in the U.S. on the iPhone and Android, and then over in the U.K. only on the iPhone. It's $199 in the U.S. and $99p in the U.K., and it has some really awesome stuff from transcripts to bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and a lot more. And we have also recently released a MuggleNet fandom calendar for 2013, and here's Harry and the gang to tell you more about it. Hey Harry, working on that potions I say for Monday? Uh, it's due Friday, Ron. What? No, you're pulling my leg. Hey Harry, doing that I say quite early, aren't you? See? It's not due until next Monday, right Seamus? Um, I thought it wasn't due until the Monday after next. Well, I already did mine, because it's due Thursday. What are you talking about, Pavati? It's still on Monday. No, no, no. no it is What is going on here? I'm trying to do my charms homework. Hermione, when's that potions essay due? Friday. Next Monday. It's, no, it's two weeks. Hold on. Let me check my calendar from MuggleNet. It has all kinds of important dates, such as future conventions, birthdays, and important events in the wizarding world. Yeah, but what about homework? Ah, here we are. Yes, I thought so. That essay is due... Tomorrow. Start 2013 off right with the new MuggleNet fandom calendar. Each month features photos and drawings from various corners of the Harry Potter fanbase, as well as historical dates from all seven Harry Potter novels, and Harry Potter birthdays for characters, actors, and your favorite MuggleNet staff members. Visit MuggleNet.com to preview the calendar and get your own copy today. So that will do it for us this week on Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 17 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. I lost my place in the book. Hold on. Um, are you beatboxing? I was. Oh. <laughs> Lev, are you still there? I am here. I'm not beatboxing, but I'm I'm just here. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I totally lost my spot. I suck at life right now. Sorry, guys. So Harry and Ron get this idea that they're going to go, um, I guess, what is it? They're going to go tell um, McGonagall. Man, now I forget. Why are they going to talk to McGonagall? Do they Cause, go to yeah, because they want to tell her about they oh, everything okay. they learned. Yeah. yeah, edit that out because I sound like an idiot. Lockhart, what house is Lockhart, was Lockhart in? Do we know that? Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Crappies. I can't believe I didn't get into Ravenclaw and they let Lockhart. <laughs> Come on, Lav. We're partying it up in the Hufflepuff common room. I know we are. I know we are. <laughs> Please. No one knows how to party like a Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs>